Welcome to the Achieve Podcast. I'm your host, Derek Feldman, and each month we explore the research, strategies, successes, and even the failures behind some of today's best fundraising and marketing for causes. As we explore each one of these, we'd like to invite different types of guests that will explore their own unique takes on what really works today, and will leave us a little intrigued on what they're working on for the future. This podcast is supported in partnership with the Festival of Children Foundation. We're excited because today is a discussion around research and science behind philanthropy. Our discussion is going to be with Dr. Amy Thayer, Achieve's own Director of Research. Dr. Thayer co-authored books and chapters around behavioral as well as wellness and health populations, generational differences in charitable giving. She served as the associate faculty at the Indiana University, Purdue University, Indianapolis, where she taught research methods as well as studied and worked at Virginia Polytechnic Institute and State University. We're excited to have Dr. Thayer with us on this edition of the Achieve Podcast. Well, hi and welcome, Dr. Thayer. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I'm very excited to talk with you today. Well, uh, I'm excited too because this is kind of one of those where you and I, who who actually work together, get a chance to <laughs> get a, get a chance to help everybody else understand the thinking behind some of our research as well. So I appreciate it. Yeah, it'll be fun. All right, so you got to give some people some background. Tell uh, tell the audience, give us a little sense of how you got to where you are, and uh, a little bit about the your research history in the past. Yeah, sure. So my background professionally has actually been working with different kinds and multiple not-for-profits. And so after decade, I think, or so of doing that, I went back to school, got my PhD. I studied behavioral science and actually in the health sphere where I studied overweight and obesity. However, as time went on, I had a few jobs in that actual area. But then what I found was is I really wanted to bring together both my professional experience with my education. And so although um, behaviorals, behaviors in science are a bit different than perhaps behaviors in philanthropy. The reality is, is that the theory behind behavior change and behavior science is actually the same. And so I found a position that actually merged those two backgrounds and those two skill sets at the Indiana University Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. And so that position actually offered me an opportunity to take what I knew in behavioral science and behavioral change and apply it to philanthropy. Excellent. And then from there, obviously, I met you, and we moved into doing some research at Achieve. Yeah. So when you were at the School of Philanthropy, talk a little bit about some of the studies that you were working on. Yeah, thanks. It was actually very interesting because my particular position sort of ran the gamut of looking at philanthropy. And so I did multiple projects looking at youth in philanthropy, looking at philanthropy education of K-12 through students, college students. And then I also spent a bulk of time working on um, an ongoing project that's done every other year uh, between the School of Philanthropy and the Bank of America, which looks at high, um, high, high um, income donors and looking at their behaviors there. And so it really gave me an opportunity to kind of look at both ends of the spectrum, right? A majority of the high donors were um, very seasoned givers, whereas children obviously just beginning to learn a little bit about philanthropy. And what we found uh, throughout all of those studies is really that there are a lot of common denominators about philanthropy and folks giving and donating their time and things like that. Often the context is different, but what we found is majority of the uh, innate influences and things like that are very similar. Well, let's talk a little bit about that because, you know, think back to some of those studies 
about donor behavior and some of those intricacies as to why people give or get involved in causes. What have you noticed since doing a lot of the philanthropy research about those behaviors in particular that seem to be, I would say, common trends? Right. What's really interesting because I think across the board, philanthropy is a very personal type of behavior and or thought, right? Right, right? We're all involved in our daily routines and what we're interested in specifically in our own lives. And I think at times we lose that um, thought that although I have, may have different interest areas than you, really the innate drive in me is to give back and to help folks you know, that I want to help that are important to me. And so those particular groups might be different, but that drive, that internal um, belief system is really pretty common across the board. And so one thing I think has been really interesting to see is that we're now finding out like the health benefits of giving and donating, right? Not only psychologically, but also physically. And so I think when Mm -hmm. you put all those things together, this is a particular behavior that's going to, you know, be common throughout humanity. Yeah. And and because I think uh, in terms, we're also tapping into a little bit of that empathy and emotion, right? For sure. For sure. Right. Because I think um, I'm always amazed because a lot of evidence will show you that folks who actually materially probably have the least tend to give the most. And so I think that is a direct indication of the empathy that folks have. Right. So I, I might have it not so great but I probably have it better than somebody else. And that's a beautiful thing if you look across the spectrum for folks that participate in philanthropic kinds of activities. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that as we look at how empathy is 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 used, I would also say that uh, natural disaster time, we see a lot of that, right? And especially coming out in philanthropy. Yeah, I think absolutely. And, and the different kinds of disasters, um, in different regions, right, very specific to a particular area. But the rate at which folks are coming out to support people who they may never have met to a place they may never go um, is really, I think, a huge testament to human empathy and uh, compassion. So we often think that donors make rational decisions in their brain around philanthropy. <laughs> what, what have you discovered in the years doing the research? Yeah, so that's that is really interesting too. being a behavioral scientist. You know, first of all, we understand that although people might have these attitudes um, towards a particular cause or they may have perceptions of how they can really help. First of all, to take those attitudes and perceptions and translate that into behavior and then behavior change and then sustainable behavior change. It really doesn't happen like that. And if it does, it takes such a long time. And to your point, I think what we see more frequently is something touches somebody, right? And I think that's the beautiful part of the spontaneity of a human being. Um, instantly, something touches you and you're willing to support it immediately. And uh, I think that that is the thing that keeps people going. And although you may research a particular topic and may research a cause and, and think you're really, you know, into that cause, it can just take one moment or one particular incident that really incites you to open up. Um, your world to a whole different area. Yeah, because I, I, I think in the, in the research we've done on millennials and others, we're emotional, empathetic human beings, right? We respond to things of, uh, when we see other humans who suffer. And at the same time, we desire, though, a rational decision, or we think everybody, you know, that the, the actions we take are always rational. But in reality, we're kind of impulsive. 
And I, I, again, going back to the behavior, I think that's so true, right? That's why you look at any of the, you know, 12 step programs, 10 step programs, that type of thing. It takes repeated behaviors and repeated thoughts to, to make a rational decision. It's much easier to make an irrational decision, but sometimes those are some of the best decisions. Absolutely. So in some of the research that we've been doing and talking about millennials, this year in particular has been an interesting year. I think we know we've had an election, right? So, um, so this year uh, you've been studying and leading the Millennial Impact Research Project primarily focused on how millennials are engaging with social issues during an election year. Talk a little bit about this study and then obviously we want to Talk about some findings too. Yeah, so that's been a really fascinating study this year because of all of the things going on in, in popular culture in the U.S. and the way that abroad is really viewing the U.S. And so what we found with the millennials is, that, you know, they're an interesting generation because I think they're they have two juxtaposing you know, sort of um, realms of them. People seem to think they're very self-centered. They only worry about themselves. But then people understand them to really be a generation that wants to do good, that's very empathetic, as you said, and wants to get involved and make change. And so what we found in this election season is that may be the case, but the reporting of activities and behaviors that would support that kind of belief was really um, muted much more than we would have thought. And so um, some of the, the, the specific findings that we found to really support that was fewer millennials were reporting themselves as being activists. Um, along with that, fewer millennials were reporting that they could actually they believe that they could actually make a difference. And then what we found beyond that was the actual behaviors of um, donating to an organization, to volunteering with an organization, to um you know, going out and doing demonstrations for a cause that they believe in or a specific social issue that they believe in was actually also diminished. And so that really caused us pause to try to understand, you know, this is a, a generation that we we see them out doing things, right? They're, they're very engaged. They're very involved. At least that's what we think. And so we are trying to make sense of how these, you know, sort of disparate findings make sense for the millennial generation. And we're not quite there yet. Right, because there's several more waves, or there's a couple waves of, of pieces. Talk about the design of the study and why do the design that way? Yeah, because we thought during an election season, we really wanted to see. So as I said, those generation that we think is, is really engaged and really involved, did that translate over into an election year? And if it did, did they remain you know, engaged in the activities that they generally are engaged in throughout the year? Or did that shift over into the political sphere to um, you know either campaign on behalf of a particular candidate or to stand behind the the issues and the causes that a particular candidate was a champion for themselves. And so what we did was is sort of monitor. We monitored both their attitudes and perceptions as well as the behavior month to month uh, beginning in March through um, post-election in November. And so what we really wanted to understand were there things that, you know, incited change? Do we see sharp spikes or, or declines on a particular month based on what was happening um, in the in the political context. And interestingly enough, what we found was is it remained pretty stable. Uh, folks that were engaged tended to report that they were engaged and, and folks who weren't tended to not be engaged. But what we found was is that the, the millennials that were less engaged really were higher percentages of, uh, more than millennials who were engaged. And so what we're hoping to do now that we're post-election, we've got the results. We know what this particular sample looked like um, over a course of nine months time, we're going to interview them to really find out, okay, why were you really engaged or why weren't you engaged? Where is the disconnect there and where is the connection points? And so we hope to come out with some very definitive answers to help explain maybe, um, you know, the disconnect between 
behaviors and what we believed about this generation. Very interesting. Well, let's talk about design since of studies and research pieces, because I think a lot of people would love to know more about their donors, know more about everything, but it's kind of maybe either expensive or there's just a lot of time it takes. Talk about how you like to design studies in order to get at behavior and perception and attitudes. Right. That's a great question, because um, I think as we started this conversation, behavior is a really difficult thing to predict. And it's a very even more difficult thing to change. And so with this study in particular and what we're trying to understand as we move along to either predict people's behavior or to understand it is you need to understand what they do consistently. Right. I think um, as the old saying goes, the most um, the most um understandable, I guess, piece of current or future behavior is looking back at past behavior. And so that's that's what we've really tried to do in constructing studies so that we can follow folks over time to see if there are changes, are there consistencies, and then what does that mean? And so I think in, in particular with the Millennial Impact Project this year, political um, ideologies are really something I think that we've seen, particularly in this election, that were uh, unstable, if you will. You know, folks didn't really know which way they wanted to go and where they wanted to land with a particular candidate that may not be in favor to what they really believed in. And so by understanding where they were at a given point in time and using repeated measures to understand that, you know, thoughts and beliefs and as well as their behaviors, it really gives us a full picture of kind of what was going on with that group of people. And so then the key piece beyond that is really to sit down and talk with these people to understand the why, right? So the surveying and repeated measures month over month gives us really the what so that we understand that a certain percentage is engaged with this and a certain percentage stands behind this candidate, but we still don't know why. And so now we're getting into the really, I think, um, connective piece of the study where we can sit down with these folks and delve a bit more deeply into what they were thinking and why they behaved the way they did or thought the way that they did to kind of bring the whole picture together. So as an organizational fundraiser who wants to go out and learn more about their donors, what would you recommend that they would do? You know, knowing that there are some who are probably listening to this that, that can't afford big research projects. And, right. there, and there might be others that will. But, but what, did a, what would you recommend for those to try and uncover more about their donors? Yeah, I think first and foremost, it's, it's key to know what motivates your donors, right? Who are they? But what is the motivation behind them interacting with your organization? You know, it's probably the cause that they're interested in. But what is it that you as an organization are doing to really capture their attention versus another organization that may be supporting the same cause? So you want to understand where they are and what they hope to do. The other key issue I think that may be neglected is donors really want to know how does their time, how does their money make a difference? Right. And so I think a lot of effort is put into the front end, really trying to um, encourage folks to, to interact with the organization to support this cause. But at the end of the day, they you need to have some accountability to them to say, hey, this is how your time, your money made a difference to this cause. Because, again, going back to the beginning of this conversation, I think donors and folks involved in philanthropy really have this innate sense of wanting to do good. And if they know that they've done good then I think you have a better chance of retaining them and bringing them back to your organization. And a couple other questions here as we wind down. One of them being, uh, there are so many survey tools and options and opportunities out there for anybody to pick up and just send something out and try and get information. Right. What are some common things that, uh, that you see in surveys that are developed either you know, by an organization or an, or an individual who's not a researcher that 
that tend to be flaws that you would recommend to, to try and not do? <laughs> yeah, good question. Um, I, I'm, I taught a research methods class actually um, for a few years at the university, and I'm always amazed. People think creating surveys are very easy. Students said, oh, I can create a survey. But they're actually, if they're done correctly, they're very, very difficult to create. And I'm still learning myself as I go along. But one um, very important mistake, I think, that we've all made at some point in time is the leading question, right? If you really want pure, useful, helpful answers, you cannot have a leading question that sort of pigeonholes a person into answering a specific way, right? So you you want to ask it in a um, um, non-biased way, if you will, non-skewed way uh, to get the most beneficial information you can. Additionally, I think a lot of us have have an idea that a survey either needs to be really long or it needs to be really short. When the reality is, is I think you need to figure out what specific information you want and ask the best questions to obtain that information. And so I think demographic information is very important and key because if you're asking people questions about their their attitudes or perceptions, what their behaviors are, if you don't know who those people are, it doesn't really help you. Um, so I think having specificity as well as concise survey instrument and then also open open sort of questions that people are free to answer are really the most beneficial. All right, last question. In, if you're wanting to go out and find out more information, what's sort of the first step that somebody should take uh, to learn more about how to do some research on their donors. Yeah, that's really interesting. So I think, number one, if you're looking at current donors, right, you want to utilize all the analytics that you have available to your disposal. Who's visiting your website? What are they visiting? How much time are they spending there? Um, do you know if they're downloading your materials? That'll give you, um, I think, an insight into how people are interacting and engaging with your particular organization. I also think it behooves you to do some investigative work around what are other people in your same space doing? What has their success rate been? What are they measuring? Perhaps that will help you a bit to understand what you need to measure to understand what you want to know about your donor base. Um, I think I think we all use the anecdotal information that we have, and we're very, um, for lack of a better word, egocentric about what we believe, because this has been our experience. But just because it's your experience, you have to remember that's not everybody else's experience. And so that's where um, evidence-based you know, surveying evidence-based information on how you make your decisions around your organization and how you're going to interact with those donors is so key. The other piece, Derek, I just want to mention briefly is something that we're finding both in the Millennial Impact Report for 2016, as well as the retrospective um, looking back five years on the Millennial Impact Project, is we have seen over the years the, the uh, role of technology and how folks use technology. You know, it's not going away. It's only going to get more and more useful, I think. And I think it, it, the organizations that are really successful are the ones that know which platforms to use with which particular population. Right. And so just because you have a fancy website and and, and it's pretty and it, it, it gives all the information about your organization doesn't mean that the people that you want are going to actually get there. And so I think we just have to be thoughtful about using technology um, to help us advance both our message, but also, you know, the metrics that we want to capture. And that's where I think technology can really help you get to know a bit more about your donor and the folks that interact with your organization. Wonderful. Well, Dr. Thayer, thanks so much for joining us. Yeah, thanks for having me, Derek. I appreciate it. We again want to thank Dr. Thayer for joining us on this edition of the Achieve Podcast. This podcast and all podcasts are available because of Festival of Children Foundation and their opportunity to help member organizations excel in capacity of their fundraising, marketing, and awareness building efforts. Thank you, Festival of Children Foundation, and thank you for listening to this edition of the Achieve Podcast. <laughs>